Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 11. This is Eric Marshall here. Uh, you're going to notice during pickups uh, there are some audio problems, especially with my voice, but it does get better during principal photography around the seven or eight minute mark. So just hang in there and enjoy. Thanks. Today we're talking about Woody Allen. Uh, the three of us saw Woody Allen's latest film, Blue Jasmine, and we're ready to talk about it. It's going to be great. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's good stuff. I've been bugging you guys for, well, two months ago, I said, when we started this podcast, I said, eh, I don't really care what we do, but as long as we do a Woody Allen show when Blue Jasmine comes out, you know, and unfortunately, we live in Detroit, which is going to be a second or even third tier city. It's almost seeming like to me. It takes forever to have to be able to see it, but we've all seen it now. Yes. Uh, exciting stuff. Um, hey, at least it came to Detroit, though, in Orlando. I think that's an eighth-tier city, because I don't even still, yeah. I, I still don't think it's showing there. Yeah, I could, I could totally, yeah, I could see that. So, um, so that's what we're doing today, but first we'll do pickups. Um, how you guys doing? What's going on? Uh, <laughs> doing really good. I guess we should start by, you know, saying I am Eric Marshall. And I am Nick Schlegel. And I am Chris Gullen. So there you go. So uh, what's up, guys? I know you guys. This, this is Labor Day weekend. We're recording on. Uh, what, what are you up to? Well, uh, I I had a I had a good movie day yesterday. I I Chris and I went and saw Blue Jasmine, and then I followed that up with finishing up Husbands and Wives, which I've been wanting to do for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to watch Passion with um, with Don, which was uh, De Palma's. Last film, um, which with uh, Rachel McAdams and Numi Rapace, or Rap- I, always, I, never, I, never, I never know how to pronounce her name. If she was Italian, it'd be like Rapace. You know, you know, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but I do love her. And it was really a return to form for De Palma. I loved Passion and highly recommend it to the listening audience out there as well as to you guys you guys know i'm a huge brian de palma guy oh yeah and when he's on i think he's you know really on and when he's off he's pretty off but even when he's off there's something pretty provocative or interesting about his cinema and i just thought brian was totally on in this film and i love this movie it's just exquisite to look at and it's the the two female leads are just amazing great great sounds good and Chris, what are you up to? I know you oh, just moved back to Michigan, right? I am back. I yeah, I'm back I'm in back. I'm back for back the thirteen fourteen academic year. Uh it's good to be back in uh my hometown. And um yeah, that's pretty much it. Just getting um Wayne State already started, uh so getting acclimated into uh, back into teaching and all of that good stuff, and um, yeah, had a had a great movie day watching um, Blue Jasmine. Great good, film. good, good. So, it's, yeah, it's, go, all, it's all good. Did you guys go together to see that movie? Yes. Yeah, uh, I went to the uh, Maple in uh, Bloomfield. Oh, the Maple. Cool, cool. You guys saw the Maple. So, Chris, you happen happen to be back at uh, Michigan, good old sunny Michigan. Yeah, yeah, good old sunny mm-hmm. Michigan. Well, it's cooling down, and it's 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 kind of nice. I mean, I I. I uh, you know, miss miss my son in Florida, but uh, I'll be going back down there next month. Um, so and we Skype, and so that's all. It's all good, and it's it's good to be back in in Michigan, and uh, the weather's a little bit more 
a little cooler. So yeah, I mean, I love the heat, but it's a little cool. That's it. yeah, definitely, definitely. I've watched a few uh, films this week, a couple of Woody Allen films because I knew we were going to be talking about this. So I'll talk about that later, though. Uh, what else have I done lately? Um, just, I mean, school starts this week, so I'm trying yeah. to get all that together. And I keep opening the documents, and um, every time I open the document, I'm shocked to find that these syllabi have not, indeed, written themselves. I don't understand it. <laughs> I know. It's, it's what's, up yeah, what's up with Why that? Why not? Yeah. So uh, doing that. But I'm really excited about this semester, actually. Uh, I have some good classes. So I'm really looking forward to teaching, believe it or not, which is something... I haven't been able to say for a little while, to be honest with you. Um, so that's good. What else? Um, yeah, I saw Blue Jasmine last week. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But yeah, otherwise, just, uh, you know, it's been a good week. Just coasting to the end of summer. And I'm really happy about it. I'm, I'm happy to get back into the saddle. You know? Yeah, me too, Eric. And Thank I am, you. I too am looking forward to the new semester and, and fall, no question. I just got fun with my friend Mark Miller down in Columbus, who I've mentioned on previous podcasts. And he invited me down the weekend before Halloween to, you know, watch some movies at our friend Dave Harnax and his, uh, 16 millimeter theater in the basement. And, um, what else? Uh, you know, I probably just go down there and, and polish up some chapters on the book that, you know, might need some minor revision and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm also looking forward to the fall. Thank all right. you all for tuning in and listening to us and for your amazing generosity with our ratings palooza. Yeah. Yeah. That was nice. Um, for those of you who missed it, we, we, we try to get as many, uh, reviews as possible on iTunes on the same day. And, uh, we, it was pretty successful. We, we enjoyed it and, uh, we loved your, uh, positive comments and everything. Uh, if you missed that, that's fine. Um, if you want to go to iTunes and rate us, that would be great. It does help. Uh, but yeah, but August was our, was our, was our best month, uh, so far. And, uh, the interview with Bob Burgoyne, uh, Ended up uh, having a lot of downloads, um, especially for uh, in the first couple of days. So that was that was awesome. Um, and there's a couple other things. I have some. Uh, I found this new uh, podcast called the uh, Podcore Nerdcast. It's it's run by MC Hawking, who's a nerdcore artist. He does. Uh, you guys know nerdcore? Sure, through you. Yep. <laughs> okay, good. So uh, MC Hawking's one of the seminal like nerdcore artists. He does. Uh, you know, kind of hip hop kind of stuff, uh, rap, I guess, through, uh, some kind of voice encoder thing that sounds like MC Hawking. It sounds like Stephen Hawking. It's, it's great okay. if you haven't heard it. But anyway, I've listened to that and he had a guy on called Atheist. He's also a, a hip hop artist who does some nerdcore. And, um, in Atheist, I, I follow him on, uh, Twitter and we had a small uh, interaction. He might be interested in coming on. Um, on oh, a show at some point, and he has a master's degree in film studies. So that's kind of cool. Very cool. <laughs> so great, man. Yeah. You know, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. But, well, we'd love uh, to have him on, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And he's uh, from from the podcast that he was on. Uh, this is episode two of the uh, um, Nerdcast Podcore or Podcore Nerdcast or whatever they call it. Uh, <laughs> he sounds like a really intelligent dude and really like well spoken. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, so we have some stuff coming up. And then, uh, in the episode, this is episode 11, and episode 12, we have a great interview, um, with Ian Only, 
welcome to Principal Photography. We are talking today about Woody Allen. Uh, all three of us have seen Blue Jasmine, Woody Allen's latest film, and we're going to talk about the film for a little while and just talk about our reflections on uh, Allen's career, uh, his effect on us, and uh, and all that stuff. You know, just kind of his relevance as a filmmaker today. So. Uh, you guys, I saw Blue Jasmine about a week ago, and uh, I was blown away completely by the film. <laughs> um, it was uh, not necessarily your typical Woody Allen fare. It was very serious, um, almost entirely serious uh, for the most part. Um, it was, it was, you know, there was a lot about it that was uh, that was very, very good. What, what did you guys think? You guys saw it together what, yesterday, I believe, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, and I had the exact same reaction. I was, I found it completely harrowing and you know I was shattered in certain ways you know I concur um, I think I might have mentioned this on Facebook I know I mentioned this to Nick but it reminded me a lot of um, you know obviously there's the the, the similarities to um, Streetcar Named Desire but to me personally it reminded me a lot of Requiem for a Dream especially um, the parallel between Kate Blanchett's performance and Ellen Burstyn's performance in uh, Requiem, um, I was also blown away. Uh, it was uh, incredibly powerful, uh, and it was it was nice to see Woody um, do this kind of a film. Um, I think it was about time for it, and um, every everything about it, all the performances really just just stood out. You know, Dice Clay and Kate Blanchett. Um, and uh, even Sarsgaard, Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah. For those who go ahead, Eric. I'm for sorry. those who haven't seen it, I mean, it's about a uh, a woman who is um, adopted. Uh, she has a adopted sister. They're both adopted from different parents, and uh, the Kate Blanchett plays the sister who uh, ends up marrying a guy who is very um, wealthy, and it turns out at some point that he's kind of a um, Bernie Madoff type uh, crook, and um, the movie goes back and forth between uh, her present and her past uh, in a very masterful way, I think. But um, between, like, she has to go to her sister for uh, to, to stay with her in San Francisco to try to get back on her feet, and, and it's about a woman who is kind of trying to survive um, after having a very lush, very, very lush lifestyle. Uh with, and trying to try to survive on her own wits in a way. I'm trying not to give too much away with my synopsis, but um, but that's basically it. What was your reaction, Nick? I didn't mean to interrupt you. So. Uh, no, no, I was interrupting you. I I just I I felt like for me, um, you know, I prepared sort of like an opening statement. You know, I haven't written anything down, but I think it bears mentioning that Woody Allen's 77. And this is his 43rd film. And that means that he's continued his streak of producing one film every year since 1971. And for those of you who are familiar with his work, you know that Woody has done all this um, with consistency of vision, consistency of theme, consistency of, of uh, as Chris was talking about the other day, sort of a working troupe. And for, you know, low-budget, low low-concept-minded cinema, which you know is very much against the grain of the traditional sort of blockbuster approach and mentality to to filmmaking these days. 
which we've talked and addressed in previous um, podcasts. And you know, it, that that bears mentioning right from the get-go that Woody, along with probably Martin Scorsese, rates as the most most important and relevant living filmmaker um, today, a living American filmmaker. And it's you know, for me, it's a uh, uh, it's just an un unbelievable thrill every time he releases a new film. It's a new experience. We all know that he consistently sort of bats a thousand, you know, and, and knocks, knocks home runs and grand slams right out of the park. And then, and then it's pretty cyclical though. He'll, he'll do that and then I'll make a, you know, a, a, a maybe a less worthy follow up to something. And then I'll make maybe what might be considered in his canon of work, something that's a, a miss or a near miss or perhaps mediocre. And then he rebounds okay. and does something quite brilliant again. Yeah. And, and we'll definitely get into his legacy. Today, how did you how did you respond to the film itself, to Blue Jasmine? Um, pretty much in in direct relation to everything I had, I just laid out before before you. It's for me it was, um, like I said, harrowing experience. Experience. Kate Blanchett's performance was uh, one not to be missed. Clearly, if if the Academy Awards roll around and she's not nominated, there'll be you know there'll be protests and, and burnings and effigies and all sorts of things going on like that. Definitely, I don't really understand the criticism that's been leveled against it by people I know uh, about this sort of blue collar misrepresentation thing that's going on in it. Uh, there have been some comments made by people. About Woody, Woody's dialogue or characterizations of blue-collar uh, uh, class of life, social class, socioeconomic class, not being, you know, represented with great verisimilitude or something like that. And I wouldn't argue with that because it would be a difficult point to argue because I would agree with them. Uh, what I would contest is what's your point? What, what's the relevant? Where's the relevance in that? Woody's entire world is is predicated somewhat. Uh, on the tropes of of you know classes and people in life. I mean, he's a humorist. That's what they do. So for me, I I couldn't quite wrap my head around what this critique of the sort of the, this hollow or empty representations. Were. You guys know what I'm talking about? I agree completely. You know, we you know Nick and I we talked you know you and I talked about this. I mean, you know, look at look at most most of the films in which he casts himself, you know, he plays that kind of nebbish, neurotic Jew. And that in itself is a stereotype that he continues to perpetuate in, yes. in, in, in all of those films. And, and, and the other thing is, it's very relatively rare amongst Alan's canon of work in which he writes middle class or, low, or, or lower class characters. Um, it's just not common for him. I mean... You know, most of the people characters he writes are people who are writers, um, uh, people who are educated, who are neurotics. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, and, and New Yorkers. I mean, he yeah. doesn't usually he, write about these exactly about lower class characters. So, so, so he writes them in a specific way. Big deal. I mean, he doesn't write them often enough in which you can levy a criticism against him. Just because of the way he portrays uh, middle-class people in Blue Jazz. Well, yeah, basically, then you have to level a, uh, an attack or critique against every character he's ever written, including himself. Like you said, the Nebishi, you know, uh, New York Jew, 
who which he's been doing since his stand-up. I mean, right? I mean, who, who's basically you know obsessed with themes of of sexual inad- inadequacies and uh, adultery and death and uh, other preoccupations. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean that's that's what he does. I mean, so to sort of like sit there and Stick. climb up, climb aboard this. I don't his his blue collar thing doesn't ring true. It's like, well, then what exactly does ring true about Woody? Because his entire career seems to be built off of taking templates of culture, sex of culture, and then, you know, uh, writing um, a series of critiques of them through the veil of comedy, you know? And so I didn't quite, I, I, I understood and agreed with it, but I'm like, exactly how is that a problem in the film? I don't understand. I might, I might take the devil's advocate role in this and say that, you know, the Nebishi Jew might be a position that Woody Allen actually inhabits. You know, he is probably neurotic. <laughs> he is definitely Jewish, right? <laughs> and, right, you know, and... Right, uh, right. And, well, Eric, I got to stop you there, though, because I'm, I'm talking about all of, not just him. I mean, everything he ever writes is sort of based on some sort of archetype. Oh, I, I kind of agree with you, but like, if you're going to do the working class, that, that is one position that like, he, he skewers the intellectuals in any hall, right? Okay. Well, I can see him occupying that, that position. He skewers, uh, you know, the kind of neurotic Jew. He, he's, he skewers the upper class in some ways, especially like, uh, for example, in Midnight in Paris. I think he does a good job of that. But if he ever inhabited the, the working, this the persona of working class, if he could ever identify the working class, it hasn't been at least in 40 or 50 years, if ever. Like, and I think that might be part of the, there's a certain tone deafness, because I, I agree with you, Nick, and Chris, that he's trying to skewer this in, in, in all archetypes, but this is one of the one of the things that I think that he, the working class is something that he certainly cannot identify with. I, I mean, disagree. I disagree. Point? I think he's, he's not way? trying to skewer them, Eric. I think he's no, no, trying no, to I, yeah, you're right them through that. the eyes of Kate Blanchett's character. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and and in that case, I, I agree with you. If he's if he's doing it in the eyes of Kate Blanchett's character, who is, I mean, if she's the narrator, she's an unreliable narrator, obviously, right? But if if you're doing it through her view, but do you get the sense that she that that the movie is is through the view of of the Kate Blanchett character? Because I think it's very critical of her as well. It is very critical of her, but it, it, you know, it is it is essentially. Her movie. I mean, if you look, you know, the flashbacks revolve around her frame of experience, you know, with, with whether it's regards to her ex-husband or to and his financial way way right. of being, yeah. his infidelities. You know, it, it's all revolving around around her. Not and, to mention, Chris, when Ginger does try to make some sort of effort. To uh, elevate herself above her her social class, she winds up getting completely screwed over for her efforts. By Al, right? By Al, right? Yeah, and so, if anything, Al. the working class is 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 the opposite of skewered. It's sort of like, um, it, to some degree, it's kind of lionized in, in in some way, shape, or form because you know she she returns back to the guy, the sort of the Brando character, you know, who who. Uh, um, who truly does care about her and truly mm-hmm. does love her yeah. and is crying himself to sleep yeah. every night? Chilly. Uh, sure, those are those are stereotypical and cliche driven, but 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 you know, so is 
so is Woody's entire oeuvre. I mean. Well, and I think there's, I think there's an, and I agree. Like nobody comes off well in this film, or very few people come off well in this film. So, I mean, the Baldwin character obviously is a shyster. You know, he's, um, um, you know, he's cheating people out of all his money. She's a fake. You know, no one comes off well in this film. But um, as far as the portrayal of the working class, and I do want to hammer away at this just a little bit longer. I think we should, because um, I, I think it's, yeah, we're all disagreeing. Um, I, think that, <laughs> I think there are two, there are different levels. I think on a narrative level, the working class guy that um, her sister, whose name I don't remember, um, her Ginger. sister, Ginger. Ginger, thank you, uh, Ginger chooses, is, is a pretty stand-up guy who's going to try to take care of her. Right. Right. But on the, on the, level of characterization, the way uh, the actors are directed perhaps, or the little characters are written, who's to say, but it's the same writer-director, right? They, they come off as buffoons, as simple-minded, as anti-intellectual, as uh, simple-minded, and th- throughout the film, they seem like a bunch of dopes, you know? A bunch of jerks, you mean his, his you buddies? Know? Is that what you mean? Him and his buddies. Him and know. his buddy. Chili, now, I will say that, yeah, Chili and his buddies, they do come across as adults, but remember that, that you know, that scene near the end of the film when, you know, and I, I, I again, I don't mean to ruin it, but when Augie confronts <laughs> Jasmine, yeah. he does not come across as adult. He comes across as... In the supermarket? Uh, no, no, on the no, street. In, the in street. front of in front of the jewelry, oh, okay. in front of the jewelry yeah. store, when they're about to go pick out rings. Oh, Augie comes up. Oh, yeah, no, Augie, the di- yeah, dice clays, dice clays uh, uh, character, and he comes up and he has this really, really powerful, powerful moment yeah. monologue. And there's mm-hmm. this great moment there, yeah. and I don't think he comes across as a as adult. Mm-hmm. At all, he, yeah. But even you know, he, I, I agree with you, Chris. But let's go back to a scene where theoretically we could conceive him as being adult, and that's when he walks into the the, the, the their their home, their Park Avenue, you know. Uh, oh, with his sunglasses. Uh, sure, and he's like, "You you missed a really good party." I mean, Joey Bag of Donuts, you know, sang at our at our <laughs> wedding. Joey Bag of Donuts. Joey Bag of and Chris and I are laughing at each other. And sure, you could say, well, that's stereotypical. Yeah. But guess what, right. man? There's about five billion dudes out there that say that daily. You know, I mean, it's right. not that ridiculous. If you're, if you have an ear for dialogue, that's he didn't just conjure that up. No, that he exists. watched an episode of Jersey Shore. And <laughs> yeah, they're all, they're yeah, all that like exists. That. Come on, know? hey, I mean, Joey Mega Donuts. That that does exist. You know, I mean, and it's like then then we have to throw away every sort of Italian American representation from, from right. the beginning of time. You know, so right. it's like I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, I buy I, I'm not gonna disagree formally with that you know there's some right. I'm just gonna say does it matter you yeah. know I mean we're not if we're gonna get into media representations in Woody Allen films I mean you're gonna have revolts from prostitutes saying that you know uh, you know Judy Cum is a misrepresentation of, of a you know working class right. a, a prostitute I mean you know it's it's under the guise it's under yeah. the sort of umbrella of comedy here you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely, and I think that in a certain way, it's just a certain amount of tone deafness, you know, especially when you're casting somebody as going to be ultimately on a narrative level the good guy, he just, you know, when Chili is arguing with her, for example, in the grocery store, right? you don't feel sympathetic towards him at all, right, and, you, and it does feel more stereotypical than everything, but so does everybody in this movie except Kate Blanchett, right? right? right. She's the only complex character. 
including Alec Baldwin, the the you know the Bernie Madoff type. Sure, but, you sure. Know, so right, so you, right. you can go the other way, but I just think that the the point that Woody Allen is a little tone deaf to the working class, I think, is um, is not. I mean, you're not you're not going out in left field to, to pull that. Kind of uh, exactly. Out, I, don't, but, I don't disagree with says, it. Says, yeah, but as, but, Nick, but what's as you're point? saying, Nick, yeah. yeah, if it's comedy, you exaggerate for effect, especially with satire. Um, yeah, I get, I get both both sides on that for sure. Um, yeah, there's some tone see, deafness, yeah. but I, yeah. I, I, as I originally stated, I feel that tone deafness is sort of part and parcel of of Kate Blanchett, sort of like her worldview on the lower classes, basically. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. And, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> well, the, just that you know, we we seem to inhabit her mental space a lot in the film, and I mean a lot. That's true <laughs> because of the flashbacks, and let's talk about the flashbacks for a minute. The flashbacks are not marked as flashbacks. Sometimes they're very confusing, cuts, and I think yeah, um, yeah they're straight cuts. There's no indication, and there were times where I was confused. And I think that's intentional, and I, I don't. I don't. It's not a fault of the movie. Um, the the flashbacks come and you're like, is this present of the past? Like for a the minute, first couple you know? times I was like that too, Eric. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was yeah. like that through the whole freaking thing, man. I was <laughs> like, what? But which is I think intentional because she's so deranged, so that like I feel like I don't think the film is strictly through her point of view. I don't think we're supposed to identify with her, but on the other hand, I I do think that we are supposed to. I think like because she's so deranged that the, the the structure of the film with the flashbacks does make sense, um, and I, I'm not willing to go as far as to say her representation of the working class. That this is like a character's representation of the working class. I do believe. I, I just don't know. <laughs> I'm not willing. Yeah, to go I'm not that all far. in on that theory yeah. either. I I'm yeah. not saying like it, it's all a point of view and it's her point of view. Right. Uh, but I'm saying, but if we're, you know, with her constant badgering and critique of her younger sister, uh, in, in you know, constant, you you have to wonder, Ginger, why don't you stick up for yourself? She's constantly yeah. saying all these horrible things to her, and it's Augie or Cookie or you know, the dude, the the, the I forget his name, not Augie, Chili, Chili, Chili. 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 <laughs> You know, Chili's the one that's frequently speaking up for her, and he's yeah. saying what the, the the person who would fight back would be saying. But you know, at the end, she finally does sort of like speak up for herself, and and that that, that we should jump to the end for a second here because I I yeah. I elbowed Chris during the film. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right when she gets out of Peter Sarsgaard's car, and I'm like, all right, she's heading straight to the Golden Gate and gonna do a nosedive. I thought and so too. He gets back to the apartment and you know they have the big confrontation and she takes a shower. She says I'm leaving and she and I'm like oh here comes the cathartic shower. And, and she slips out <laughs> in the ba- remember, in the rear of the frame. She just slips, slips out. out. And I'm like and then of course you know we witness the tragic birth of the woman who talks to herself, you know, yeah. outside. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she goes and sits down and talks to herself and then of course the film ends. And I'm like but 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 Where's the nosedive? And then Chris and I are yeah. talking. And I'm like, well, that's probably what she's going to go do next or something. Or uh, she's just going to re, re, you know, the, the cycle, the cycle perpe- perpetuate. perpetuate itself. Yeah. yeah. I that's how they found expect- her. I completely expected her to kill herself as well at the end of this movie. And, um, and I was almost surprised that she didn't. But the way that they reveal her mental illness in flashback and in real and in, in regular time is, is really amazing because 
it's not really revealed in flashback until about two thirds of the film, until Act oh, yeah. three, right around Act Three, which is which it's is brilliant, yeah. right? So the the present of her breaking down and the flashback of her breaking down are in parallel edit more or less, which yes. is a brilliant, Jeez. brilliant move. Yeah, because you're experiencing it kind of twice. Yeah, you know, and you're understanding why she's doing it now by experiencing the flashbacks almost in real time. It's it's really quite masterful. The way, the editing is amazing in this film. It is, and I yeah, didn't expect it. I didn't expect the twist. You know, I mean, I really didn't. Uh, it's not one of those things where you're, I think, thinking, "Where's the twist in this film?" Instead, he just presents one to you, and you go, "Oh no, yep. seriously, that's what happened." You know, yeah. that's that's how it all came down. Yeah. And that's and that's something I like about uh, Woody Allen in general, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll we'll get into his legacy very very soon because I want to I want to uh, I want to segue into that in a minute, but you, you you don't know like you don't expect happy ending for this guy right, but mm-hmm. but that twist of like she's where it ends with her <laughs> talking to herself on a bench you're like oh no right no I agree with you guys. Uh, I wish I'd seen it with you guys, but uh, I had the same. same point. I was just like, "Wow, this is like, this is devastating." And 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 like you said earlier, Nick, if Kate Blanchett is not, I mean, we'll, we'll be hearing Kate Blanchett's name in in January and February when Oscars roll around. And if we oh, know, I don't we know what's be. wrong. You know, we better be. Yeah. She that line. Oh my God! One of my favorite scenes is when she's with her her two nephews in that you know restaurant. Oh, that's and she's. Mm. She's got the big monologue, and, and they're like, but why are you talking to yourself? And, and, and she's like, boys, there's just so many. No. And they're looking at her like, what? You know, a woman the... can take before she winds up on the street talking to herself. You know, it's just like, what a great line. What a great Woody Allen line, you know? Yeah, definitely. The, uh, the, the screening I went to, um, there were, I was in Ypsilanti, and there were about maybe 15, 20 people at the screening. It was an afternoon uh, show. And a uh, little, you know, older crowd than, than your normal summer blockbuster, of course, pretty stereotypical. And during that moment, with when she's talking to the kids, that was like the moment of greatest laughter. There were a couple guys in front who were just laughing uproariously yep. while she was like, you know, boys, you know, and like the kids are looking at her like, what are you talking about? I know. I, they're, that was they're like the, twelve, the and of laughter. fourteen, or eleven and thirteen or something, you know. I don't know, maybe even younger. Yeah, uh, maybe ten and twelve, and yeah, you know, great laughter, and like I was chuckling just because the people, you know, in front were laughing. But it was this moment of like she has, as you said, Nick, she is. This is the point where she has kind of lost it, you know. So so sad, and um, she, yeah, I mean, she's yeah. just. If or, you want to talk about yeah. verisimilitude, there's yeah. there's the verisimilitude. Yeah. It's all in Kate, you yeah. know. Yeah, definitely. Or or to put it even more precisely, this is not the moment where she lost. It's the moment where. Woody Allen reveals to us that she's lost it because that's always there, you know, and that's where it's it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm 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 I clearly you and I agree. Like, I mean, I'm not gonna argue the point that there's a tone deafness. I'm just gonna say you're right, but does it matter? It does. Know? I don't think it does matter. I don't. I don't think it matters. Um, somebody may say think... from a media literacy point, you know, well, sure it matters. Media representations always matter. And it's like, yeah, but you know, then erase his entire forty-one films then, because he's all, you know, it's 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 comedy. If you're gonna say that's off limits, then all comedy, then everybody's out of work, you know. Yeah, that's true. No, I I I, I thoroughly agree. Thoroughly agree. Then every comedian will be going. Well, if I can't make fun of anything, well, if you anymore, can't make, yeah, if you, and, and if, if every comedian is 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 forced to re-examine all of their character tropes and stereotypes, then then what what happens to comedy? 
Yeah, that it's the death of comedy, you know. Um, it is the death of comedy. Yeah. Because so. that's part of what comedy is. It's it's making fun of certain stereotypes. Oh yeah, the heightening of them and the exaggeration of them, you know, right. to, to, for, for you know, I, I'm not talking about being mean-spirited. I'm not talking about uh the types of 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 humor that have have uh, led led to stereotyping based upon race. No, or but it, gender it, or hair color or Allen's sexual orientation, you know. I'm just talking about yes, you know, you make a joke the guy, the guy says, "Joy bag of donuts." We get a laugh. I don't think anybody's hurt, you know. No, no one's, no one's hurt. But whether it's whether it's Woody Allen making fun of the nebbish Jew, or whether it's Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy making front, making fun of African Americans, or whether it's uh, um, Sarah Silverman, you know, making right. fun of the the female Jew or the 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 female. Um, Girlfriend, whatever you know, whatever it, it may be, whatever it may Matt be. Matt and Trey you know, making fun of Mormons, you know. Matt I mean. and Trey making fun of Mormons or Scientologists. If you if you take away that that First that, Amendment, that right, First yeah. Amendment stereotype, then, you know, that, the that, role that, of satire is greatly diminished in our. In, well, there is no satire if you no take satire. that away. If you take that away, there is there is just zero. Don't get, all, don't get all First Amendment on me, guys. Come on. <laughs> I mean, no, uh, I mean that's. <laughs> That's a bit far, you know. Yeah, we all have the right to say what we want, but it doesn't mean we all make good. No, art. no, no. You can, there's a difference between like making making types certain types of humor at the expense of others that's mean spirited and yeah. intended right. to be misogynistic or racist or something. Yeah. That is a big. There is a big divide between that and saying like joy bag of donuts and getting a laugh, you know. Um, yeah, but they're both protected under First Amendment. They are, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh. But no, I, I think one, one typically gains an audience, and the other one typically, <laughs> you know, uh, has an audience desert them. So. Yeah. So um, as far as uh, Blue Jasmine goes, I think we've done a pretty good job of um, discussing that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about about Woody Allen's legacy, and I think Nick uh, suggested earlier today that we um, come up with our favorite Woody Allen films, and also the films we think that a, a Woody Allen kind of neophyte should should watch. Somebody who is, as Nick put it, come from another planet, and is like, who is this Woody Allen guy? Never I seen a Woody Allen film. Yeah, and I think that's a great idea. Um, I think before we get to that, I want to I kind of riff on what, what Nick said earlier about, um, I think it was Nick, about the, um, the ending of Blue Jasmine. Because one of the things about Woody Allen, if you know his movies, is you know not to expect a happy ending, right? I'm thinking of uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, sure. or, uh, Match Point, or Cassandra's Dream, right? Which are, I, I, I think Match Point and Cassandra's Dream are kind of remakes of Crimes and Misdemeanors in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, but yes, whatever. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, or, or a lot of his stuff, you know, and he's got this kind of very negative, uh, kind of nihilistic almost kind of worldview. And I think that, you know, if you know Woody Allen, you, you come to expect this a little bit. But um, his recent films, this one, maybe Midnight in Paris, um, maybe Vicky Cristina Barcelona, are, are seem to be a new era for him of, of real kind of block, not blockbuster, but very mainstream films. Right. Uh, and, and that stand on their own in a lot of ways, right? Uh, yes. I a, think. A renaissance, you know. It, it is like a renaissance. So... Uh, but that comes on a you know on a forty some year old uh, year career so 
and and I think it would be interesting and, and important to to situate Blue Jasmine in that context, right? Within that context of his, of his career. So um, that said, um, do you guys want me to tell the story about my my coming to Woody Allen? Yeah, I, absolutely. I, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, this is probably about uh, seven or eight years ago or so. You know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm in a film PhD program at the time. I, I, I know a lot of films, but you know, like we talked about in the uh, in episode ten with Bob uh, Burgoyne, that you, you can't watch everything, right? You can't, uh, you can't see everything. So um, I. Uh, I was talking to my, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, we were talking about Woody Allen, and it came it became apparent, <laughs> clear to both of us, that I I think I had seen maybe parts of Deconstructing Harry and maybe the opening scene of Manhattan in a like cities in film class, but it became clear that I I had never seen a Woody Allen film back in maybe 2006, 2007. And uh, which is, I know you guys are like in horror right now. It's like, what? How can you have never seen a Woody Allen film, right? It is what it but, is. Yeah, right. And so Molly and I decided to. This is Molly, my ex-girlfriend, who um, you know is a cinephile in her, in her own right, um, very much so. She does film reviews and stuff now, and um, and she was like, we got to watch them all. So we decided to watch all of Woody Allen's films. And at the time, there were um, some thirty-eight or nine, forty, forty-one. I don't know how many there were, but there were there were there were a lot, you know. And so I watched all of Woody Allen's films within a maybe a two month period, two or three month period. Binge watching. And I remember this very well. It was a binge watch for sure, and it was uh, you know it was like a total immersion. And the funny thing is, I identify very much with with it, with Woody Allen. You know, I'm uh, I, you know, I'm neurotic in certain ways. I, I have a lot of the same uh, you know neuroses or preoccupations he has. Um, you know, and all that. So, and, and we didn't watch them in order. Maybe we should have. But, um, but I've seen them all. You know, and I saw them all in a very short period of time, fairly recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in this week, I, I watched a couple uh, of them again. You know, just kind of to, to refresh for this episode. But so I've got my own favorites. I've got a, a total ranking. You know, you should uh, probably go first, Eric. You should probably tell us what your, uh, you know, I since go, I have I not seen I every Woody Allen film, last, but and okay. I imagine Chris hasn't seen every Woody Allen film, but you have seen every Woody Allen film. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was hoping to cop out and go last, but I'll I'll go ahead. Um, it's up to you. To me, no, 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 I'll go first. I'm just I'm just messing around. So um, basically, um, for me, like he's like it's hard not to put him into uh, periods. Yes. You know, um, correct, correct. Kind of the, uh, you know, if you look at his first film, um, you know, take the money and run, and uh, go from there. The first film, it's hard too because Rich, like, he didn't direct that, yeah. Well, no, he did. He did actually. Um, take it, the money. I thought he. One, oh no, played against Sam. He didn't yes, direct. Yeah. Played against Sam is the one that everybody thinks he directed, but he didn't. He wrote. So like, right. you have to think about like, what did he write? What did he direct? Right. I'm talking just as a director or a writer director, and. Good. Um, you got What's Up, Tiger Lily first, and then Take the Money and Run, and up through Love and Death, I think you've got his his kind of silly phase. You know, his, his very like physical comedy, very uh, kind of slapsticky, but broad in a lot of ways. And then Love and Death was 1975, and then you have Annie Hall in 1977. And then I think I think that kind of starts his, his next period. I'm not going to go through all this. What yeah, I, no, I agree periods, with you 100%. But, yeah. And, um, and so, but Going through all of them, 
and watching a lot of them over and over, my favorite film of his is Husbands and Wives. Yeah. And uh, it's, it, I think it's the best. It's a very complex look at, um, at relationships and at marriage. And uh, the Mia Farrow character in that movie is so, like, quietly insidious. You know, she gets, <laughs> she gets manipulative. manipulative. She gets what she wants. Uh, very... It's very mousy, kind of passive aggressive way. Oh, it's, it's incredible, amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It is a great film, and um, that, that's my favorite husband, uh, my favorite film. You know, I, I thought maybe I was an outlier on this. I was like, oh well, you know, I was going through um, uh, Voodoo, you know, the V U D U, the sure. thing on PlayStation. I was going through a lot of his films yesterday and looking at the Rotten Tomato scores mm -hmm. and, uh, and the Voodoo scores, and rot the Rotten Tomato score of the ones I looked at, that was the highest one. It had a hundred. Husbands and wives. Yeah. Yeah, so it frequently um, tops his his top ten lists. Yeah, at so least I'm in not, the one or two spot, you know. Yeah, so I'm not, uh, so I shouldn't be so surprised. You know, no one should be surprised that Wisdom is Wise is my favorite, but I really, I really do like that the best. Um, we'll we'll go into which ones we think people should watch. I think we're we're going to agree probably almost unanimously on what people should watch if they're just getting into Woody Allen. But what do you got? What are you guys' favorite? Uh, well, I think, I just, I think I'd like to comment. I think Chris and I'll take a minute to comment on your choice. Mm -hmm. You know. And, um, you know, I, I bought Husbands and Wives based upon Eric's recommendation when he watched it, whatever, five or six years ago, and got halfway through it. And then, then I, got, I got shelved for a while when I always meant to return to it because I was loving it. And then I told Eric Chris yesterday, I, I got to finish Husbands and Wives, which I did last night. And, yeah, was completely blown away by Husbands and Wives. I just... I, I applaud Eric's choice. It's not my personal favorite, but it 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 is an absolutely exquisite and like flawless portrait of this the the union of man and woman through you know bonds of marriage and so on and so forth. And I just was like you know absolutely blown. I was so blown away today that I went out and like you know found the Ben Stiller uh, show uh, parody of it. Um, I, which I don't know if you you guys have seen or not, but the Ben Stiller parody of it is is it's uh it's it's in the tradition of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, you know Woody Allen brings you Bride of Frankenstein, right? And it, so they take the whole husbands and wives things and sort of repurpose it into the Bride of Frankenstein. So it's it's the bride and Frankenstein who are getting a divorce, and it's the mummy. And I don't really know what Mia Farrow's character is supposed to be. She's like a zombie or something. And it's it's absolutely hilarious. We'll put a link to it on 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 the show. Chris, did you have any comments about uh, husbands and wives? Um, I mean, I I pretty much you said it, pretty much summed it up perfectly. I have not seen the Ben Stiller parody. I saw Husbands and Wives many many years ago, uh, over ten years ago, and I adored it. Um. It's it's not my personal favorite, but I think it's up there as far as what a what an alien should see. If not 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 just if they want to understand Woody Allen's films, but I think if you look at husbands and wives and look at the relationships, the way they're played out, these are I mean these are real people. I mean this is the way. And that's one of the things that Woody Allen seems to get so well when it comes to relationships is his his true depiction of relationships and people. Yes. These are not these and, are not Hollywood glamorized people. These are real people with ridiculously real problems. With you know. exactly with ridiculously real problems. And granted, a lot of them are are 
to kind of go back to that, our writers and and, and whatever, and I I, I think of a, of an upper middle class, upper class, um, positioning, but they're, they're real people, you mm-hmm. know, and and Torture as some, artists, you know, yeah, as somebody who's who's, I, I mean, I look at that film, I've revisited that film a couple times, and I I I look at, it, I was like, oh my god, it's 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 real, I'm I'm in that film, and 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 and. Because it's it's real people, real relationships. As somebody who's gone through relationships and marriage and divorce you, you, and all you know, of that, I was just when I was watching I it last night, I was, I was looking at Sidney Pollock and and going. I was commenting to Don. Not, not only did we lose him way too soon because he was such a phenomenal director, oh, really Sidney one of my Pollock. favorite directors, but he was wonderful. such an underrated actor. Uh, he always lent such a sort of authoritative, classy. Uh, presence to whatever role he was inhabiting for whatever director he was working with, whether it was Kubrick or Woody Allen or you know or or or, or himself or like himself in Tootsie, and, like and in Tootsie, Tootsie for example, you know. And Tootsie, <laughs> yeah, I I and you took the words out of my mouth. I think Pol, um, Pollock's character is is my favorite, just the way because of the way that he he in, inhabits the character and he does that in so well in every film. That he that he did whether whether it was Tootsie or whether it was Eyes Wide Shut or Husbands or Wives or or whatever else he was in, um, I think that's a good way of putting it. A, a certain amount of of class mm-hmm. that he brought brought to his, the whatever scenes. Well, who's up next, Chris? You want to go next? Your, what's your favorite? My my personal favorite is uh, is actually the first Woody Allen film that I ever saw mm-hmm. uh, back in the uh, God early nineties, which is. Um, the Purple Rose of Cairo, and I like it yes. because I look at it as a a love letter to Hollywood and the movies sure. and the way that movies come to life, right? I mean, you have the Jeff Daniels character who steps out of the movie, and I love that. And it's yeah, I see it as a real parallel for the way that movies inhabit our lives and cinema is part of us. And those of us, like the three of us, and hopefully whoever's listening, who live and breathe cinema, it, it just kind of it, it, it envelopes us. And I I love every moment of that movie. Uh, it's magical. I remember watching. I was very young when I saw it, and. I watched it on a Saturday afternoon, and I just adored it. And I have watched it over and over and over again. Um, and I'm, I, I admit I'm not a huge fan of Jeff Daniels as an actor, um, but I think that that film is just – it's a its a personal favorite. It's in my top five of all-time favorite films, um, and it's just magical. If there was ever a, a, a movie that I can call a magical movie – uh, about movies, um, it would yeah, be the Purple it. Rose yeah, Purple that's it for me. Ex- the, the Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, it's just timeless. It's well acted, and um, the it's so neat the way you get that so, the reflexivity of of Daniel's character in real life and in the movies. It's just it's just a fun film. And if um, those of you who are listening who have not seen the Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, go see it. just yeah, just grab yeah. grab it you can you can find it easily and um it will just be a, a wonderful journey for you yeah i agree that that's a that's a wonderful movie that's one of the ones i meant to rewatch this week but i didn't but um his his self-reflexive moments of the past aren't they like purple rose is great for that um 
Radio Days is one of those. Oh, beautiful. Oh, Radio it's Days. Yeah. the same thing. Um, it's not one of my favorites, but it does. It has that same feel. And that, then, of course, yeah. Stardust Memories. Yes. Oh, right. It's Stardust with, Memories. Yeah, it does, it does a very similar thing to the Purple Rose of Cairo. I think those are um, they're all worth seeing, especially if you're interested in that self-reflexive slash nostalgic sort of thing. I, I adore that movie. I'm a huge, huge fan. Uh, uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, yeah. because uh, people who know me know that Cinema Paradiso is in my my top, uh, top right, five right. films oh, yeah. of all time. Oh yeah, and, we know that. And I think that the Purple Rose of Cairo is Woody Allen's love song to yeah. the movies. One of his one of his many, in fact. One <laughs> right? of his many. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's yeah I, agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah, th- that's what I like about him as a director. He loves movies, and it's clear that he loves movies, and and he. He knows he's part of that tradition, right? Right, right, and, right. And he and he's and he's he knows he's contributing to that, you know. As much as um, uh, well, we might talk about this later, but um, as much as I feel like he's um, you know, there's not a lot of ego that I that I perceive in his films. I, I feel like I feel like he does see himself in a lot of ways as just a guy that makes movies and and a guy that, but he understands that he's participating in the tradition as well. Absolutely. Um, you guys might disagree with that, but but I, I do think there's that that's in it sort of like respect and and kind of just I mean he was born in 1935 you know he's been around for for, for most of of cinematic history and he respects that tradition. Yeah. I agree, and everything I've heard about him, everything you know from from being on the streets of New York to playing his clarinet in that little ensemble in New York, you know, he, he's not, he's not one of those people to stand on ceremony. He's, yeah. you know, he's, he, he is very private. Yeah, he doesn't but, show up to the Oscars, you know? No, he, he skips he's the Oscars. Play that night. He's, he's playing in his little, like, you know, whatever it is. He's, you know, he is, he's jazz a, ensemble in Clarence Village. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, sorry, guys. You know, he doesn't care about that. So much. I don't want to leave he's New not, York. I don't want to come to LA. And the only time he had gone to the Oscars was uh, to make a plea for uh, filmmakers to, to continue to come to New York. After 9/11, he uh, on, on the Oscars that were in, in 2012, mm-hmm. he um, he went to the Oscars and he wasn't even nominated for anything, I don't believe. But uh, he made a plea, like, please continue to come to New York. It's still a great know. place to film, and and we need to continue to film there. You know, more or less was 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 his pitch. You know, when he's nominated or wins, he doesn't show up. But there's a tremendous so, irony there. Because he's not well, shooting well, in New York anymore, yeah. He can't, he can't oh, afford to. Oh, that's you know? a good point, Nick. That's a very good point, you know. He Rome, doesn't even shoot in New York anymore. Paris, San Francisco, that's a very yeah. good point, you know. Maybe he just wants to get out and see the world. But, yeah, no, that's no, a very I think, good point, I think Nick. there's been what's, a, a comment made by somebody somewhere that, you know, he he's sort of, you know, he, he has very modestly budgeted films. Yeah. Like stars, stars rally around him and compete for parts because they know it's it's Oscar, you know. I mean there's been sixteen yeah. sixteen nominations and six Academy Awards given to actors who've worked for, for Woody Allen. And, That's amazing. Yeah. It is. And, you know, like I, I seem to recall reading somewhere that the the this re- this European Renaissance is uh, partially because he's been sort of priced out of shooting in Manhattan to some degree. Um, not that he won't write a film that takes place in Manhattan, but he's quite successfully not done it for a while now. So. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Which is I ironic. Know. I mean, the, the, the director who is so, probably one of the, the 
the director v, was most Scorsese, close, yeah. closely. Yeah, I mean, like you know, close. One of the directors that was most closely identified with New York is is priced out of it. You know, the 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 Jerry Orbach of directors. You know, Mister New York. Um, because Jerry Orbach was the actor was always called Mr. New York because he was such the quintessential New Yorker. You have you have Woody Allen is is the quintessential uh, New York director. Yep, absolutely. So Nick, what's your favorite Woody Allen film? Yikes! What a <laughs> difficult thing to do for all of us, right? You know, I was tempted to go with what Chris did, which was choose the first film I saw from Woody Allen, which was I was super young, guys. It was probably I was probably about six, and I was watching Take the Money and Run with my mom. And this would be only a few years after Take the Money and Run came out, you know. Um, and, and I was also tempted to do What's Up, Tiger Lily because of my love of that film. But I'll be, uh, you know what? I went with my heart. And I think my favorite Woody Allen film is one of his most neglected and least discussed. And that's Mighty Aphrodite. <laughs> I talked about this yesterday, man. Just love Mighty Aphrodite and for those of you who haven't seen it um, it is you know it's it's uh, it's Woody paying homage and uh, you know tipping his hat to uh, Greek tragedy really you know via a Greek chorus that starts off chanting and you know introduces and narrates the story for us uh, and and basically it's about uh, a couple who have adopted a child who has is, is shown to be quite gifted and it leads the father to wonder who the mother actually is so he winds up going out to find out who she is and he finds out that she's a prostitute <laughs> in the form of the very beautiful Mira Servino who won an Oscar for her sort of Mickey Mouse uh, tone adult you know her Mickey Mouse intonations yeah. you know uh, which are incredible I did not know that. Oh, so yeah. hey, hey, hey! That's yeah. no, Len. You can't, you can't do. No, hey, that's not all right. You know, that, that, like, that tone she did for the film was just magical. She's so. That movie, I chose Mighty Aphrodite because, like, minute for minute, it's the Woody Allen film that makes me laugh the hardest and the uh, most, and I truly yeah. fall in love with the characters so, so much, especially. Linda Ash slash Judy Cum, which is her stage <laughs> name, which which Woody has a lot of fun with, right? He's like Judy Cum, you know. Like, so I I gotta go Mighty Aphrodite, and again, you know, I'd be curious to see what your guys' reaction to that is. It's a it's a funny funny movie. I agree. I was just thinking about that movie the other day because there are like the, the scenes in her apartment when he's there visiting her, mm -hmm. to me, are some of the most memorable Woody Allen scenes. You know, these are so... In his entire career, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah I agree. It's so funny. That's a, that's a great choice. What do you think, Chris? Oh, I thoroughly agree. Uh, and, yeah, I think I think it's a, a film that when you, when, when you talk to people about the canon of Woody Allen, it, a lot of people just kind of gloss over it. And um, I was not aware that that Mira Sorvino won the Oscar for that, but I'm not surprised. Um, those those scenes in her apartment, the the contrast between the two is just it's it's they have such wonderful chemistry. And, and, and there's scenes. a lovely arc to the film. I mean, you know, where where the characters wind up going, and I love right. that too. Um, and and I love Woody's character. The you know he's a sports writer. You know, um, and and I just. I don't know. I just you, you kind of fall in love with Mira Sorvino's 
Judy Cum in that movie. Judy. Really dumb. <laughs> Judy Cum. Judy. <laughs> I just you fall in love with her. You know, it's it's uh it's an, it's an incredible movie. I don't own it. I I mean I've seen it probably a dozen times, uh, but I need I'm waiting for it to come on Blu-ray. You know. So that's my that's my favorite. Yeah, it's a, a that's a great choice. Um, so uh, of the of the three choices, so mine was husbands and wives, right? Um, Chris's was um, Purple Rose of Cairo. Purple Rose of Cairo, and which was okay. So Purple Rose of Cairo was nineteen eighty five. Okay, husbands and husband wives was nineteen ninety two, and Muddy After is ninety five. So mm-hmm. our three choices for best were between eighty five and ninety five. Yeah. Any reflections on that? That middle period, yeah. That's that, middle yeah. Period. yeah. That's that middle period. That touches mm-hmm. that touches all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I was very tempted to say two films from really early on: "Take the Money and Run" and and you know, "What's Up, Tiger Lily." Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, agree. I love "Take the Money and Run." "Take the Money and Run" is such a good film. And uh, I just rewatched Love and Death the other day, which, which I've never seen and I always wanted to. Oh, I've never seen. I've never yeah. seen it either. It's one of his yeah, most. You guys need to get out yes. and watch that because, like, you were talking about uh, Chris when you introduced uh, Purple Rose of Cairo. You were talking about one of his least appreciated films. I think Love and Death is up there too as one of his least appreciated, and it's great because I, for me, for me, um, the uh, Love and Death, which was what I consider the end, like not the end, but like kind of. You know, Love and Death was 1975, Annie Hall is 1977, right? And Annie Hall is the one everyone kind of knows, I think, with Woody Allen. But um, Love and Death, it still has that silliness of Take the Money and Run, the slapstick, the, the ridiculous humor, the, the wordplay that you get from his early stand-up. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes, exactly. But it also has some of the things, like, it's. I think it's the first one that is inspired. You know, everyone knows that his... Well, not everyone knows this, but one of Woody Allen's best, uh, biggest influences, strangely, is the Ingmar Bergman. Right? Yep. He's a cross between Bergman, Ingmar Bergman, and the Marx Brothers. Yep. And Levin does that exactly. Yeah, and, I know. I've, I've always wanted to see it. Yeah, no, and it's wonderful. I mean, we watched it, and it, and it does that. You know, I, I laughed constantly throughout that movie, and some of it's just so stupid and silly, and some of it's just so. You know there are there are references to uh, Potemkin in there. You know you get the yep. Bergman thing. You got death. You've got all kinds of stuff in that film, and it and I really think that's the beginning of his of his maturation period where he's like maturing into into, into doing things that are a little deeper than what's up to really taking money around bananas and all that stuff. Right, right. Um, all of those are all very they're very great, films, but they're they're, just... they do mark a certain. Uh, period of his, mm-hmm. and um, I, I want to give a quick shout out too um, to uh, our fellow Detroiters. Uh, another podcast called The Projection Booth, uh, hosted by Mike White, and um, he's the co-host of that. We'll have Rob St. Mary, um, and uh, you know, The Projection Booth did a uh, episode on Love and Death, which mm-hmm. is a really good episode, has a really in-depth um, kind of uh, discussion of of that particular movie. Uh, you guys should. should Check it out. Uh, check out the podcast. And Watch FYI, I'll be I'll be appearing on the projection booth um, in uh, in October. Uh, yeah. So everybody, I'll be discussing Spanish horror, and I'll be discussing a, a, a one film in particular that Mike's very fond of called Who Can Kill a Child. 
and uh, and we'll, we'll be returning the favor having Mike on our show at some point in the near future as well. Yeah, so huge shout out to the projection booth, mm-hmm. and and for me, huge shout out to Love and Death, which I think is Woody Allen's uh, one of the greatest. Um, so we've done our favorites. I want to save the ones we think people should watch for a minute. I want to talk a little bit, of, if you guys don't mind, mm-hmm. about that kind of existentialist kind of. Um, kind of vein of his, of Woody Allen's, you know, because after that, that, that period I just talked about, we have Annie Hall, which, which has that self-reflexivity that you know of and has the broad comedy and which I suspect we'll be mentioning later when we talk about what people should watch when they watch something. But, um, but if you look at like, you have Annie Hall in Manhattan, his two best known films probably, but between those two, you have, uh, interiors in 1978, which, um, is a very introspective, very depressing film. Uh, have you guys seen Interiors? No, I've just heard so many. You know, like there's the the average fan, the average not average fan, but the average cinema going person can take Woody in small doses. Yeah. And if you if you were to show them Interiors, I think they would probably beat you over the head with you know their shoe. I will because I've probably, heard that it's yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard one to sit through. I'll probably get. I'm. I i do not know if I'm the average Woody Allen fan or not. You know, being a guy with you know, since as we all are with a PhD in film and all that stuff. You know, I don't know if any of us are average or anything, but I, I feel like I'm kind of average. But I will tell you, Interiors is my least favorite Woody Allen film. I would not show it to anybody. I think it's awful. Uh, it's depressing, and I get what he's doing, but I just don't. I, I agree with you. Whatever you've heard, Nick, I maybe you heard it from me, but I agree completely. I've heard the, sa- no, I've heard the uh, same thing from from Woody Allen fans. It's their least favorite, and that means that the general yeah. cinema goer yeah. would probably kill yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, but that's just sandwiched between Annie Hall and Manhattan, you know? And then uh, another one that uh, probably a lot of people have not seen and probably shouldn't is September in 1987, which mm-hmm. came between Radio Days and in which is also 87 and uh, another woman woman which is 88 um september is another one of those that's very introspective and like i like when he does that but i think it's better when he tempers it with with some comedy and, and it sounds so shallow when i say that i know it does but when he goes straight bergman when he goes straight like you know, depression you get kind of i don't know it's 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 overwhelming in, in kind of a bad way you know interiors i mean it's in September, not great. Another Woman is another one that's very, uh, which is uh, 80, 88. Also kind of depressing, but but yeah, I do a, like... Sort of channeling Cassavetes and... Yeah, and I do like Another Woman. Uh, that one I do like. And then in 89, we've got Crimes and Misdemeanors. And uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors is one of his best grossing films, uh, adjusted for inflation and everything. And uh, it's probably one of his best known as well. But, you know, one of the things about Crimes and Misdemeanors is you, it's very serious, oh, yeah. and it's very, uh, you know, it's a guy who's accused, of, who's who murders somebody, and and who ultimately gets away with it, and it's about like morality, and and, and, and you know, and can you get away with things, an existentialist kind of thing, that like, and what does it mean to be a good person, all this stuff, and it's, you know, it's it's amazing, but also it has these incredibly comic, kind of. Um, interludes in it, right, as well, which is, which is uh, kind of paradoxical almost. You know, what do you, what do you guys? I mean, I just I'm rambling right now a lot, but what do you, you guys can respond to whatever you want about that. What do you guys think? Well, it might be. I'll be honest with you. It might be a good time for me to start with 
my second choice, right, where we talk about, um, and you guys don't have to do this, but it just provides a perfect segue because uh, in the framework of our second choice, which is if an alien came down and said, hey, I heard a lot about Woody, what, what should we watch if there's going to be, I'm only here for a few hours. <laughs> my choice is Crimes and Misdemeanors. Um, when Eric told me he was going to be doing watching all of the Woody Allen films, uh, based upon all that I had seen, I was most curious to get his response to Crimes and Misdemeanors because, to me, it's kind of there are several perfect Woody Allen films, and Crimes and Misdemeanors is one of them for me. But it's it's sort of the more mature part of his second, the second phase of his career. It's like themes that began in Annie and Annie Hall and uh, Manhattan uh, come to ma full maturation, I think, when he gets to Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is 1989. And uh, it's also, as Eric just said, also very funny, but clearly one of his most sort of thought-provoking and uh, morality tales about you know this, and, and it's a great role for Martin Landau, who's trying to resurrect his career at the time. And uh, you know, you meet this guy in the beginning of the film, and and then you know you find out just exactly through the powers of rationalization what he's capable of doing. Um, and it's you know just exquisitely cast, and really the work of 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 a true master. Uh, at the height of his sort of like skills and, and, and powers. And it's kind of the, I would say it's, you know, one of the top Woody Allen films that has it all, you know, and that's why I say it's one to show the dude from Mars because you know, there are several we can choose. But for me, that was the one where I went, my jaw dropped and went, wow, man, what, geez, I did not see this coming, you know, and, and, it's kind of like the precursor to Blue Jasmine in some ways. You know, it deals with such heavy, heavy, dramatic issues, but frames them all just with the lightest touch. You know, the one thing you forget about Crimes and the Misdemeanors is, you know, everyone who has seen it remember knows the the main plot line, right? Uh, there's this guy who is accused. Of, you know, we just, you just went through it, Nick, right? But then there's that. <laughs> you know what I'm about to say, right, Nick? There's that scene where Woody Allen is in there, and he's talking, he has to shadow Alan Alda, the Alan Alda character, as this like pompous uh, director. And Alan Alda is so good in this film. And there's a scene where he's talking about uh, his his I think it's his sister is like this guy brought me home and he tied me to the bed and all that stuff. You remember that? Of course. And uh, and, and, and and the whole like his whole reaction is like. Why? <laughs> you know, his, his whole reaction is is basically like, what? Why did you? You know, like there's this completely comic side. There's a there's this side thread with Woody Allen and all that, and and this weird dialogue, which is like classic funny Woody interlaced and intercut with with the really the real, yeah the 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 crimes and misdemeanors aspect of the title, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what uh, some of the other films missed a little bit. Uh, Blue Jasmine, I think, does not have that comic intercutting. Uh, there's some, but eh. but it works, you know. Yeah. It works. But you're right. I think it's a, crimes and misdemeanors is a prelude to a lot of stuff that he does, and yeah. uh, some of it works really well, and some of it doesn't. I think, and some of it's just uh, him rehashing some of his old stuff. Uh, Blue Jasmine being, I think, an exception. I think it rises above 
but um but there's but this uh, funny stuff about like he brought me home and he tied me up and oh, no, stuff. So. and in his reaction to that that's the stuff you forget about Christ and misdemeanors that makes it just an incredible film well when you get to the end and I'm not giving anything away but there's just you know there's this famous still of the film of Woody Allen and Martin Landau at a wedding you know yeah. it was in fact I think it was on the poster and you know you've just they don't know each other and they you've just watched this whole film these two plot lines converge upon this moment and it's just so brilliant it's just you know that's the only word i can think of it it's, it's brilliant woody allen's a brilliant director and writer yeah and they converge in a way that you kind of want them to but you don't expect them to chris yeah. have you seen chris crimes and misdemeanors what's your reaction to it uh, I have. Uh, it's been a very long time since I've seen it. Um, from what I remember of it, uh, I pretty much concur with with both of what you're saying. Um, as far as important films, you know, so, something that I would show an alien. I have. Uh, I'm gonna break the, the the mold a little bit, and I'd show them two. Um, and one, of course, is. Pardon me? Cheater. I know, I'm a cheater. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping the alien will have a long enough time to watch two movies. Uh, the first one is uh, Annie Hall, which I think next to Manhattan is, is what you know, a lot of people would say. Oh, Annie Hall, Manhattan. And I, I, I've shown both films in um, film classes before uh, Annie Hall and Manhattan. Well, let me just interject then and say that, like, maybe we'll all we'll all give in a free pass that we all get to show Annie Hall. Then is that? Is oh, that, all right, fine, yeah. fine. Okay. okay. Well, well, all right. So Annie Hall. Oh, I don't know if Eric likes that. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure he doesn't disagree. Yeah, you know, Annie, I have to think about something else. <laughs> well, my, you know, I I like it because you know it, it, the the relationships and his his satirizing of of the upper of classes the upper class celebrity. the fourth wall the fourth wall that whole marshall McLuhan bit <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great if life was like that you know yeah. marshall McLuhan said you don't you don't know you know nothing about my work uh i i love every every minute of any hall but i'm going to take a slightly different <laughs> turn and i because I think that Woody Allen is really the first director to employ a steady revolving troupe or repertory since the studio era. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's really the first director. You know, you see a lot of directors now, Wes Anderson and um, Kevin Smith, that really employ the idea of the repertory, where you have a steady. Uh, uh, um, Christopher Guest does this with his mockumentaries. We have a steady rotating group of actors in your films. Mm-hmm. But Woody Allen was really... And, and Scorsese think, probably. And Scorsese. Degree, yeah. And I think Woody Allen was really... So not since the studio era, you know, Woody Allen was really one of the first directors to do this. And he brings them all together in a film that I adore and a lot of people didn't like because they said it was schmaltzy and corny. Oh, I and Nick, you I think you know what movie I I'm going to say, and I I have Great to choice. say it because it is a film that is so close to my heart for genre, and I love it because everybody in the movie does their own singing, and mm-hmm. that's everyone says I love you, mm-hmm. and that has so many Woody Allen staples. Yeah. It's got Alan Alda, and 
uh, and Tim Roth is in there, and uh, every, everybody but Drew Barrymore did her did their own singing, and that was because Drew Barrymore and Woody Allen both agreed that she would, couldn't sing. Uh, Ed Norton, uh, it's 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 a great film. It's a it's a love again a love letter. You know, I, I I seem to like these Woody Allen movies that are love letters to things, and it's Woody Allen's love letter to the musical. And there's so many wonderful moments in that, and I I he has fun making fun of the upper crust of New York society, and he uses his troupe beautifully. Um, the musical numbers are wonderfully executed. They're placed well you know and they're 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 a lot of them are sta- most of them are standards um that he uses and he even he even uses a, a musical a, a musical love song that's translated into hindi mm-hmm. i yeah it, it's with a song by a cab driver mm-hmm. i mean really a cab driver singing a love song in hindi oh you know woody allen does that and only woody allen could pull that off and is it corny yeah there's there's certain aspects of it that are that are corny but it's it's just a great film, and if you want to look at, at many of the aspects of Woody's oeuvre, uh, and like I said, I'm going in a different direction than Crimes and Misdemeanors or Blue Jasmine with my Alien, but um, I think that's it's it's one of the most important movies, especially also because it goes to Woody's love affair with New York. Yeah, you know? I had a I had a rumor. I don't know if this is true that. Um that Woody Allen casted everybody, cast everybody in the film without telling them that it was a musical. Yeah, I read that in, like, premiere. I read you know, that. The, the, year, the year that the movie came and out. And when they showed up, he was like, oh, by the way, this is a musical, which is a great backstory to that <laughs> it film. It is. Um, I also love that film, but I definitely would not show that to someone on the first. I, I, I don't, I've watched it recently, and I couldn't get through... It's hard to get through the first like twenty minutes because there are no musical numbers and you don't get what's going. I just, I love the film, but I would never show that to someone as a first or second viewing of Woody Allen because I think it would turn them off. I don't. I, <laughs> I, I really disagree. And I love the I film. I see Eric's oh, point. And there are so many like uh, like you said, Ed Norton, young young Ed Norton, yeah. uh, young Drew Barrymore, uh, Alan Alda is, is, is always great in everything he does, right? But um, yeah, he is. and uh. He's got, that, he's got that voice. I wish I could do it, but uh, I would. I I disagree with you, Chris, uh, respectfully. But well, I think that's why uh, he tempered it with Annie Hall, Hall, which was sneaky. Fifth or sixth film that I show somebody, I wouldn't show it to the alien. But you have a propensity for musicals, and I cannot wait until we talk about musicals on this on this podcast. But yeah, I mean, I am I am in but, love with the musical in every way, shape, or form. So I, I, I probably should let our listeners know that. I, I am obsessed with the musical. Right. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on it. Um, it it's, I am in love with it. Uh, I spend a, probably a unusually heavily amount of time in almost every class that I, I teach talking about the musical. Um, so so yeah so and I, I I was a stinker I did put in I stuck in sneaky. Annie Hall there yeah. it was sneaky I, On the I decided to be a stinker that I I I appreciate and applaud Chris's choice because I too a lot not a lot of people know this I'm a musical fanatic I was raised in a musical family. And I, I was raised on musicals, so I have a pretty deep knowledge and, and love for them myself. Uh, but I do also agree with Eric that it wouldn't be my 
my entry point for the alien, <gasps> but but uh, um, I'm sorry. It's uh, but I would oh. I would ease him or her into it, or or both. Maybe the alien is is both you know like dual double gendered or triple gendered, and um, I would ease the alien a little bit more into it. I think, which leaves. You know, um, Chris. I mean, Eric. Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say though, um, real quick, that um, I really look forward to. I, I want. We're gonna do a musical episode at some point. Um, it might just be the three of us. There might be a guest. Um, and we're also going to do. I hope in the near future a an episode on um, musical scores, mm-hmm. and. Which is that there's a distinct difference between those two things, and I think oh, yeah. Chris is definitely the expert on musicals. I think Nick is definitely. We both of you guys, in fact, are are experts on musical scores, and those are two episodes where I'll probably be more quiet than you guys. Um, as much as I love music, I just don't. I, it's hard. For, it's different, you know. Um, I can't wait for those two episodes. Uh, Me either. It's gonna be great um, for me, anyhow. Yeah. I mean, you, you, if an alien comes down and needs to watch a uh, Woody Allen film, you're gonna show him any hall. I mean, you know, if you don't show Manny Hall because it's like checked out of the library, you're going to show him Manhattan. You know, yeah, fair, fair, fair enough. That's probably fair enough. I agree. Um, beyond <laughs> that, and you guys have put me on the spot here because I haven't thought beyond that. Um, I don't know. I I might do Love and Death, but that that leans too much maybe towards the slapsticky stuff. Um. I might go much, much more modern and, and stick them with Midnight in Paris. Oh, yeah. Well, that oh. is quintessential Woody. Yeah. It is. It's it is. It's Woody, even though it's, 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 uh, it's Woody in this sort of like, you know, this European Renaissance period of his career. It is absolute quintessential yeah. Woody. It's his love letter to literature and screenwriting, yeah. you know? Yep. Um, I, uh, I just rewatched, besides Midnight in Paris, I mean, I'm, I'm, Totally waffling here because you guys have put me on the spot. But uh, the other one that I just rewatched recently that I might say would be a, a quintessential Woody would be uh, Deconstructing Harry. Which I still haven't seen. Oh, it's wonderful. Are you kidding me? Oh, man. <laughs> Nick, I have it on DVD. I think I have it with me up here in Michigan. Oh, great. In that film, and Billy Crystal plays the devil for a brief part in it. It's, it's, it I would say Deconstructing Harry or, or Midnight in Paris might be the two. Um, which um, kind of brings me to I'm totally just gonna you know, like duck out of this discussion of what <laughs> aliens should watch and go on to. There's two things I want to talk about, and one is Woody Allen's surrogates, and the other is his legacy. And um, as far as Woody Allen's surrogates, you know what I'm talking about, sure. right? Where um, Owen Wilson, I'm not a big Owen Wilson fan, but I think in Midnight in Paris, he does a good Woody Allen, great, right? Yeah. Um, and there have been other films uh, recently. Whatever works, uh, Larry David does a does a Woody Allen thing, and, and Whatever Works is interesting because it's a recent film, but it was written for Zero Mostel back uh-huh. in. He uh, must have written in the 80s or 70s, I would I would imagine. And so, if you watch Whatever Works, it really feels like an old Woody Allen film because he wrote it so much so, so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do you guys think? Like, I, I just mentioned Owen Wilson and Larry David, neither of which are my favorite Woody Allen surrogates. Um, but what do you think in terms of like surrogates for Woody Allen, people who are clearly playing the Woody Allen role but are not Woody it's Allen? Tricky. Do you have favorites? I, I would say, I'll, I'll go first and say that for me, that's tricky. I, I, uh, the, the problem that quickly develops when I look at Woody Allen's surrogates, and it's something that's been written about and discussed, is that 
so often Woody is playing a facet of himself on screen. He's playing, right. and uh, but just a facet. He tries to keep it right. slippery. So if people want to sort of like um, pigeonhole him and say, well, he's obsessed with sex and death, he can be like, well, sure, yeah, I am, fine. I plead guilty to that. You know, so is so is every human being out there. I'm just more honest about it. You know, it, it, that's one thing, and it, it's so hard not to draw parallels between the you know. Woody's on-screen persona and his off-screen persona because we'll take a look at Husbands and Wives last night. You know, one of the things that really seemed to follow that production around was there's a there's an on-screen marriage, you know, dissolving, and there's a real-life marriage dissolving at the exact same time. Uh, Woody and Mia are breaking up on-screen and off-screen. How is you know it's it's very difficult not to bring that one-to-one non-allegorical viewpoint into play um regard to the other people the play the, the the people that are clearly playing a portion of woody's psyche on screen like say owen wilson in midnight in paris um they always approach the role with him in mind and and sort of adopt some of his his you know characteristics which always makes it even even more fun yeah, I, I I thoroughly agree with that, and I, I I think that's and we talked a little bit about this yesterday about how Woody Allen is able to take people who you know the actors who may not be the favorite of 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 cinephiles like Owen Wilson or 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 other others, and just kind of mold them and direct them in a way in which they're able to take that aspect of him. And kind of run with it, and I mean, I've I've heard many many different stories about um, him on the set where he will repeatedly rewrite and rewrite scenes, write and rewrite dialogue on mm-hmm. the set, and just say, okay, I I want this better, and he hands it to the actor, and it's like, okay, memorize this, and then, right. you know, and I think that you know, if you look at these different characters. Uh, that he these surrogates, you know, the, there there are little aspects of of him in in many of them. I think Owen Wilson is probably one of one of the most eloquently um, done. I actually like Owen Wilson. Uh, I, I I know I, 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 I mean, a body of work for me to really register an opinion. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I like some of the things he's done, and uh, so I, I mean, I I think he took Midnight in Paris and just. It was, um, yeah, it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful the way he embodied embodied Woody in that. Or yeah, uh, yeah I agree. I agree that uh, Owen Wilson does a good job. Without, like, I think the the key is not to mimic him. You know, Will Ferrell does it a little bit in mm-hmm. Melinda and Melinda. Um, I think Larry David is. It's, <laughs> I mean, for you know, probably obvious reasons is a good surrogate, but um, I think Owen Wilson does it without mimicking what he wouldn't He does that, you know, he's kind of like just hesitant, subtly, you know, yeah. but, he, but he's really Owen Wilson, which I mean, I never thought I'd hear the words Owen Wilson eloquent in the same sentence like I just heard, but um, through Chris here, but but yeah, no, I think he does, I think it's right, I think that's I think that's true. Um, yeah, I don't really, I mean, it was kind of a trick question. I don't know if I have a favorite, you know, there, there are some that like really mimic him, um, faithfully, which I think is a wrong, it was just not, I mean, it's right. it's kind of compelling, but it's against it. Like that, mm-hmm. but, but, 
thing, you know. But I mean, it goes it goes to the auteur theory in certain ways, you know, that he can uh, write roles for people and direct people in ways that you're like, oh yeah, that's Woody Allen, even right. though it's not Woody Allen, right? <laughs> you know, he he does that. And, and another aspect of that of the auteur theory thing, the one you guys mentioned just a minute, uh, four minutes ago, was that a lot of times, not so much recently, but I think for a while, you talk about Woody Allen and you and People talk about oh what a what a pervert or what a you know whatever and like talking about the scandals in his personal life sure. and this is something I've never cared about um, I, I certainly do not care about and you can probably see some of that in uh, in you know some of that stuff in September or even deconstructing Harry to some extent but or certainly Manhattan maybe um, but you know you can read all kinds of stuff into his life but I think that he's one of those uh, auteurs that brings so much of himself into the film that you don't really feel the need to psychoanalyze the film to figure out what parts of Woody is all Woody all the time. Yeah, I know. You know? And that's why you and I have had this discussion so many times about, you know, I mean, Hitchcock had, had several identifying characteristics that were not really nice. Obviously, Polanski had some problems himself. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, there are, there are a tremendous amount of, you know, Fritz Lang was not known for being courteous. There are a tremendous amount of directors out there whom we may not, you know, get along with or like or even approve of their actions, but it seems to me entirely sort of outside the point of, you know, their, their body of work. Um, you know, I agree. I, yeah. you know, but at, uh, at the same time, though, I mean, we may not agree with Polanski or Woody's actions or, or, or any of those things but again it's those and I'll qualify this I'm not saying that I approve of them but it's those aspects that make them interesting directors I mean really would they be really interest? would they be interesting directors and oh, have an interesting viewpoint no, in the world I if, they were, you more, if they I'm were saying, saints I no, mean, no 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 not I'm not, at all. Yeah, no 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 we're on the same page I mean we're all agreeing with you that that what makes these people tick is also what makes interesting cinema too. There's Absolutely. no doubt. There's no doubt about that. What I'm saying is, people will uh, automatically use it as a filter to be like, oh, well, you know, this guy's a pedophile. I'm not going to watch. He's a, he's a, yeah, he's a know, pervert. I don't like, want to. Well, I don't want to watch. That's a value movie. judgment. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm not then, sure. I agree with that actually. I, I I agree with the last thing you just said, Nick, about like, oh, he's a pedophile, so I'm not going to watch his films. You know, all of a sudden Chinatown sucks, right? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah, but I. I I'm not sure I entirely agree with this. Like, oh, what makes them, you know, great cinema artists? Great artists is what makes them like these kind of not great people. I guess uh, you know, it's a bit of value judgment. I don't know if I agree with that completely. I don't think that's one and the same. It's like, oh, you have to like, you know, you have to be a pedophile to direct Chinatown or whatever. You know, like I think. No, so, that's not what I was saying. I, think I, I, I was... the director's personality is it. It's it, you can't subtract it entirely from the process. Yeah, and that's certainly especially true. I think with uh, Woody Allen, right. his personality yeah. is in even the films in which he does not star. Because right. that, like that's Purple exactly. Rose of Cairo, yeah. you know, yeah. Jeff Daniels is a good is a Jeff is, is, is a great surrogate. surrogate. Yeah. Very great good. surrogate for, for Woody Allen. Allen. Um, yep. You know the, yep. the way he's in, yep. he, he inhabits the film, and then he comes out of the film. Yeah. I and I, I, I wasn't implying that you need to you know you need to want to have sex with fourteen year old girls to be yeah. an interesting filmmaker. <laughs> what I was saying is that when you know the the, the most interesting I, artists and writers are people who live interesting lives regardless regardless of what those interesting lives be maybe they may they may be scandalous they may be have, have 
you alcoholic, hey, what, whatever. Sure. But the the people who live the interesting lives. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, are, are the ones who make. Uh, yeah, make I'm not sure. Money. I totally agree with all that. I, I agree that's often the case, and those are the ones we hear about. But you know, Martin Scorsese doesn't seem to. I mean, for, as far as we know, he's a great director. I yeah, I don't see him. You know, he seems like a pretty standard. Dude. No, but he brings yeah. his utter, you know, passions for cinema. His personality, well, which all, is interesting, his passions for New York and his passions for. Life. Italian American <laughs> life. I mean, he brings yeah. his personality is certainly, you know, projected colorful. onto the screen. Yeah, yeah he has a colorful um, his choices. His, you know, his, yeah. he, Chris talked about an acting troupe. Scorsese and and Cassavetes, you know, were two also two two directors working in in the early seventies that uh, had had well, and Cassavetti in the sixties that had <laughs> developed their own acting troupe. Uh, and their own, you know, their personality and style. There's no question. I mean, this is a debate that that can't really be won. I think what we all agree upon, though, is that people who automatically uh, pull the blinds down over a director whose personal life they may not approve of are ultimately, you know, that they're going to go through life with blinders on. You're not going to, you know, yeah. you have, you have, you're you're going to, you're going to. You're going to leave a pretty poor life, you know. I agree. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. And, we, and we'll, we'll probably continue this discussion uh, at some other point. Um, I want to talk really briefly about um, about about Woody Allen's legacy uh, mm -hmm. to, to the extent that he has one. Um, uh, Woody Allen's um, influences, we all know, Ingmar Bergman, the Marx Brothers, you know, things like that. That's, pre that's pretty obvious. I think as, as far as legacy, I think, you know, what he's still doing we talked about this in um, the episode uh, about the state of cinema. We talked about this, and I think it was episode nine. Um, we talked about these big budget blockbusters that are that are going to break the bank and whatever. William Allen's still making, as one of you mentioned earlier, uh, relatively inexpensive films that make relatively good box office. You know, he's got a lot of punkers in there, but he's still got the capacity to make some really good films. And I think that's part of his legacy. I think he can teach us that you can make smaller films with good writing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key, good writing. That can still, you know, be compelling. You know, people will still be watching uh, Blue Jasmine in 10, 20 years. Uh, people will still be watching it you know, in Paris, I think, in, in years to come. In ways that people will not be watching Transformers 3 or <laughs> The Lone Ranger, right? Uh, I think that's part of Hopefully, I hope that's right. Yes, yes, that's right. I also see, like, in terms of style, and tell me what you guys think about this. Um, Louis C.K. was in Woody Allen's latest film. Um, he's the he's the guy that was wooing um, uh, Ginger, right? And he ends up being kind of not so cool at the end. But at any rate, I love Louis C.K. I think Louis C.K. might be Woody Allen's successor in some ways. I think Louis C.K. has the same like Bergmanian kind of influences. He's very existential. He's always he's always about death and, and the misery of life, but also the fact that you have to embrace it and be there. You know, and, and and like if you watch his show or listen to his stand up. Or, you know, and I, and I hope he starts directing full-length movies soon. I think we're going to see that Louis C.K., of any filmmaker I can think of right now, Louis C.K., I think, is, is an heir apparent, yeah. Is, it might be uh, Woody Allen's successor, I think, in terms of, at the very least, sensibility. What do you guys think about that? Um, I'll, I'll go ahead, and then, and then Chris can finish up here. Uh, I, would, I would say that in terms of Woody Allen's legacy... Um, 
Yeah, it was I had alluded earlier to the fact that Woody was still making a film a year for you mm-hmm. know, for, and and that he is living proof that you know good writing is is all you really need to make a good a good movie, uh, and to connect with people. It's um, not all you need, but it's well, it's it's seventy five or eighty percent of what you. I would need. you know I'd go beyond that, Eric, and say a good a good story is all you ever really need. You know, really? you yeah. think so? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think people really care how it's presented to you as long as they're engaged. Um, we've learned that from things like Blair Witch, you know. Uh, I mean, it doesn't really matter how... Blair Witch, I'll never see it again. Uh, <laughs> I think Blair Witch is bullshit. It was all hype. Okay, then we learned that from Sunrise, for example, where, you know, the simplicity of uh, a very simple story hooks people regardless of, of what era it happens to yeah. be. Yeah, no, I agree with in. that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Granted, it is it is a beautiful to look at too, but I think the simplicity, uh, good storytelling is the spellbinder, and it always will be. Um, and I think that Woody is a great example of that. So, I mean, in in yeah. reality, no, it's not all you need. You do need yeah. you do need people to act, and you do need to shoot yes. it, and you do need people yeah. to distribute it. Yeah, absolutely. But what I really mean is, stories should be privileged above above. Without you know, a story, you have nothing. You really don't have much. You know, story <laughs> and character are, are really important, yeah. and and that's his legacy. And his legacy is still evolving, as you can see. At seventy-seven years old, with the films he's been making recently, uh, Le- Woody's legacy is is insured, and it's also still dynamic and and organic and evolving, even as we speak. For a dude who's nearly eighty years old, incredible. Uh, in terms of your your. Uh, Louis C.K. Um, yeah, I think you're right on the money. I think that's a, a really good uh, sort of a successor, choice of a successor. You know, there are other people out there that you could have said over the last 20 or 30 years might have been, might have picked up the mantle from him, uh, but I think they showed in the long run they couldn't quite do it. Uh, there are, I think, actors out there that sort of had his background and his his um, preoccupations and obsessions and tried to bring them to the screen. And but ultimately, they didn't wind up having the legs that Woody has had, and they didn't stay as relevant. And uh, I, I'm not going to name names, but there because I could just get into a whole another side debate. Uh, but I, there are people that, that pop into my mind. In fact, one of them was a co-star with Owen Wilson before, so <laughs> um, who I think his kind of his his well is pretty empty. But at any rate, uh, that's my those are my thoughts, Chris. Uh, I agree with uh, both of you. Um, first off, that Woody. Uh, his legacy is built on again the fact that he's able to tell excellent stories, and this is why. Um, this is one of the reasons why when I teach intro to film, uh, the first thing I talk about is narration and story because without a good story, you have nothing. And I think that Woody Allen, like Bergman, like Wells, is going to continue into the pantheon of, of great cinema. And if you want to call it highbrow, if you want to call it art cinema, fine, call it that. But people are going to be watching it because it's these films are about real people and real relationships. They don't have, they're not Avatar special effects fanciness. Uh, they're not um, blowing crap up. It's just stories about people, and that is event. That is that. That's why people keep going to the cinema. That's why the cinema is 
recession proof because they are stories about ourselves and they're different they're ways of, that audiences can look at and look at ourselves and constantly reinvent and reexamine mm-hmm. who we are as a people what makes us tick what makes us go through life and mm-hmm. i think woody allen has his finger on the pulse of that mm-hmm. um as far as, uh, as louis ck again i i thoroughly agree um if there were was ever an actor to kind of pick up those reins um he would he would be it i i think you know woody is going to be directing until um he's gone i like like altman i mean he he's yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. yeah he's going to be going and 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 granted his you know there might come a point where they take out film insurance on uh, on him just in the event that he passes away during uh, during production, just like they did with a Prairie Altman's A Prairie Home Companion. Uh, but he's gonna be he's gonna be continuing to direct um, until he goes. Just, you know, we just lost Elmore Leonard, and Elmore Leonard was working on a new a new novel, and okay. and he passed away. So Woody is gonna continue to 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 do that, and uh, I think Louis C.K. is is as um, a good actor as anybody to to pick up the reins because he he does have that sensibility and I like to I I'd like to see what more he has in his can. Yeah, I I agree. That's very well put, Chris. And Thank uh, you. It's very well put. And uh, you know, Nick, I I was giving you a little crap earlier, but I essentially I agree with you completely. I think that without script and screenplay and narrative, you have nothing. Yeah. Um, Even just. Characters. Most I, mean, of the time. I, yeah, I agree completely. Characters and story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I agree completely. I, I like giving you a little crap when you know. Um, when That's all right. I throw it right back at you. So we have to do that to each yeah. other. It's fun. But um, but you know, and I, and I put you guys on the spot about Louis C.K. because we hadn't talked about this before, and I know that was kind of like might have seemed out of the blue to you, but that's just like that's just my my, my feeling about that. But yeah, I agree. I I, I hope. I mean, you know, the guy's not going to be around too much longer. Um, I hope he's around another 20 years, and if he is, it's another 20 movies we get to enjoy, and, and at least six of them be good, you know. And uh, he's he's going through Renaissance. He's doing some great stuff, you know, and I'm excited to see what he does next. I know he's writing something, or he's talking about writing something for Louis C.K. that they can co-star in. That would be great, you know. I mean, that would be a lot of fun. Keeping yeah. irrelevance is, I mean, like, you know, Eastwood is, 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 is beginning that, in my opinion that slow decline you know i mean he stayed really really on top of his game well up into the last year or two and then you know i have this movie where he played uh what was it a a baseball or i forget he was like a baseball coach or something it was a baseball film yeah baseball film just didn't quite hit hit the public quite right and then you know many felt that his uh sort of his um, not to conflate politics and cinema at the moment, but his his sort of uh, his rambling at the uh, RNC was with the a empty little, chair. With the empty chair was a strange moment, and you know I I it, it, I don't know how 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 much longer Clint can really sort of be you know an, uh, a filmmaker that's at at the forefront of cinema at his yeah. age and with perhaps even de- you know declining. Faculties. They didn't, you know, that RNC speech, you know, re- regardless of whatever political affiliation you have, just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. So I don't know if I'd be yeah. wanting to take it's direction to from a, you know, what's that? It's hard to imagine Woody Allen doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I think Woody, Woody yeah, is um, yeah. three years younger or so, I think, uh, than, than, than Clint, which is. Oh, well, I didn't realize there was. I, oh, 
Really? That close. I didn't realize they were that close in age either. Wow. I didn't realize Woody Allen was younger than Clint Eastwood. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah, only by three years, course. I think. So. And, you they're, know, there's something about Woody Allen's career too that, like, for us as writers and academics and 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 creative people, like, I mean, a, a movie a year. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. We. I mean. Can you write a book a year? Can we write an? Good a lord, book no. Year? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you know, in I mean, keeping with the Eastwood analogy, you know, he he was he kind of almost was like a a film a year type of guy, but he just couldn't sustain for it. For a while, there. yeah. You know, I mean, he did not wind up living up to that, but yeah. uh, you know, uh, it seemed like Grand Torino seemed to be his swan song. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree. I agree. Like Grand Torino was great. His last movie is done. You know, who knows? Let's hold out hope for. Would, but yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen that. I know Nick, you have the uh, the Woody Allen documentary. It's yeah, awesome. I loved it. Yeah. Yes, and at the very end of it, he goes, "There's a couple. There's two things he says at the end of it. One is something to the effect of, I've had all these great things happen to me. I've had all this fortune. Why do I feel like?" Why do I continuously feel like I'm being I've been ripped off, <laughs> you know? Which I totally identify with. I totally get that, you know. And the other thing he says in that documentary is like, I'll probably never make another like really big film of like it's critical acclaim or something to that effect. And this is just before Midnight in Paris. Oh, you're kidding! Yeah. Like, critical acclaim and all that. So you know, you great. never know. Because even he didn't think he would ever make another like film that that got a lot of attention. You know, yeah, and I think you know my closing it's comment on the discussion would just be I would really, really, really recommend listeners to check out Blue Jasmine. Some of the, some of the, you know, critique I've read of it, I I don't know where people are coming from. You know, they're calling it a snooze fest and also and I'm like, what? You know, I mean, a these snooze are, fest. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Just g- general, general people like on Get Glue or Twitter. You know, I mean, not talking critics, but just the general, you know, moviegoer calling it a snooze fest or a blatant ripoff of a streetcar named Desire. You know, and it's like, well, I, I, I don't think Woody's exactly trying to hide the the parallels. You know. <laughs> And I would just say, please go see it. You, the, you will be spellbound by this this harrowing tale. I can't agree more. I, yeah, I can't agree more either. I think I think you're you're absolutely right about that, Nick. Um, you guys, I have loved this episode so far. I love this podcast. <laughs> I love what we're doing. Um, if anybody wants to comment, we we welcome comments on uh, that's a rap show dot com uh, on Facebook um, and at Twitter. We're at rap at rap podcast uh, we have some really great stuff coming up i i we welcome comments suggestions whatever whatever else i think we're doing we're doing good work here guys i think so <laughs> i agree this was a lot of fun well yeah. done us yeah thanks for doing this guys I, I i've been bugging you i know for like months about this i'm glad we did <laughs> well i mean well we had to we had yeah i'm glad the film came out and i'm so glad we yeah. saw it it's it's, yeah. it's great woody um Go see it, and 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 for those of you who aren't really familiar with Woody, we've we've provided some recommendations uh, that we all really stand by, you know. So there'd be some good films to start with. We yeah. can write them down in the show notes too. Yeah. They'll uh, definitely be in the show notes. Everything will be definitely in the show notes. And thanks for listening to episode eleven. Episode twelve is going to be a great interview with Ian Olney about Euro horror. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, it's we look forward to to hearing your your comments. And that's a wrap. And that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Cut. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm.